Welcome to Participate. I am Mike Washburn. And I'm Dr. Julie Kane. On this week's podcast, I'll get into the weeds with Julie about exactly where a community of practice model best fits in a learning program. Our guest this episode is Christina Ishmael. Let's get started. So welcome to the podcast, everyone. Hey, Julie. Hi. How's it going? Good. I do a lot of work, Julie, with a lot of different groups and organizations on on really interesting. Just before we hit live, uh, we were talking about this Minecraft project that we're working on. Obviously, as part of that work, I'm always thinking about how we can bring these people together to be more collaborative and to better communicate with each other. And, you know, so at the risk of talking potentially or possibly talking about other services or platforms, but definitely in the interest of having a meaningful conversation about communities and communities of practice, I'm wondering if you think that there are situations where this inner loop, outer loop model that we talk about all the time isn't the right fit for a community and and what model maybe the inverse of that and maybe a better question is where is there like the sweet spot for that model where it's like there's a no doubt that this communities of practice model is the way to go what do you think about that Hmm. so i do think like we've talked in prior episodes about the community of practice really requiring i think sustained energy and there are really moments where you do not have that sustained energy where you are simply wanting to jump in you know when we talked to christina around OER. So there were moments where I sort of like dropped in and I listened to a lecture or I talked to someone, but I never really jumped into that community of practice. I knew it existed, but for me as a learner, my interest in that topic, and it's huge one, I'm just using that as an example, I was more of a drop-in learner, right? I was just sort of kind of picking it up. So I think every... Where you needed what you needed when you needed it. And so you got the information that you needed and then you moved on. You know, we want to build Mm. communities of practice. We really want to see sort of sustained interaction and engagement. We're really thinking about how we ensure that technology supports it and most importantly, isn't a barrier to it. (laughs) Um, And I, but I still think for an individual person, there's lots and lots of things that are not necessarily something that you're going to join in over sustained time and you may just have a lighter interest in it. I I mean, I think you can take any topic, you know, and think about the ones in which you have sort of light interest. And that's where I do think the outer loop, inner loop actually is expansive enough that it's always hard for me to find a situation where that wouldn't work. So when I'm saying like, let's say I'm interested in OER. And so I'm just, I'm sort of skirting in that outer loop all the time. Like I'll follow Christina. I'll see what she's doing around OER. I may read an article about the state of Washington's efforts there. Um, But then I will leave it for months and I won't come back to it. Now, there, it doesn't mean that OER doesn't have a sustained community of practice. I'm just not a part of it. And so I just will kind of skirt in that outer loop. And then maybe every once in a while, I will sort of dive in. But I, I do think that the community of practice, again, is very specific in that it really kind of con- 
requires that sustained energy. And I just think we all have interests that don't necessarily always motivate us to invest that. You know what's super interesting about that answer is that what I'm feeling like that's saying is that whether or not something is a community of practice is incredibly personal in the sense that yeah. it can be a community of practice for one person, but not for another. And just because you're not engaged in the community of practice doesn't mean the community of practice doesn't exist and doesn't mean that there aren't people um, there to learn and to improve. I I'm wondering if, there has to be a focus on improving practice for something to be a community of practice and whether that is kind of the defining thing about whether something needs to use this kind of model that we rely on or not. Okay. So that's actually a very interesting point because this is something that I sometimes have an issue with, with community practice. And this might be some of my prior life kind of an academia. I know it's a bad word, but no, I love it. That's why this session is called ask Julia, not ask Mike <laughs> for the record. Um, you know, I, I worked a lot in ed tech research, you know, in the, in the nineties. I mean, when Christina in this episode talks about the E-rate, like I did evaluation work when E-rate first started in 96 and I went to these districts and everything was very research practice. That was like how I was trained sort of the first part of my career. And then I shifted to academia. I was really fortunate, right? Cause I was like a you know, mid-career, I got to go back to graduate school. And so I was fully an adult. I was a mom. Like I, and I was able to just learn for learning's sake. Mm. And I, I didn't think about whether I was going to take this French philosophy that I was reading and put it into practice. I had, and this is a pure privilege. I do know this. I had a group of people around me for sustained periods of time. And all we did was think through ideas there were really serious moments where I was in this nice bubble and I didn't have to think about how I would apply it into research in a real environment. I just was able to think big ideas. And I think there is needs to be space for that for, for everyone who's interested to have that opportunity. But in a true community, a practice, the idea is you're putting it in play. Mm -hmm. You're constantly putting it in play, I think, in some idea of the real world. So I'm not sure how I'm answering that question. I just think sometimes I would have argued that a community practice was what I was experiencing when I was thinking about big ideas. But I think if you're looking at a pure definition of that, it doesn't quite fit. That's just more of a community of learners. Maybe it's community of inquiry models, but a community of practice. I don't know if it's always about improvement. Mm. That also might be a cultural thing and that may be a North American thing, right? Everything has to get better, get better, get better, get better. I mean, I think you can just be and think about it without this kind of constant improvement. And like you said, learning things for the sake of learning things and and just to have the conversations and whether that gets, yeah. like you said, put into play or not is an entirely different story. Yeah. I, I think that that's a really interesting way to leave this answer. I think, I think there's a lot of interesting things to think about and, and, and I think that there's a lot of ways that the community of practice model can be applied. Um, whether, yeah. whether you're taking what you've learned and, and actually start doing something with it 
or if you're in a community practice just to learn things for the sake of learning things, there's kind of room. There's kind of room for everybody. It's a big. It's a big table. It's a big tent. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is exactly. And when we come back, friends, we're going to have a really great conversation with Christina Ishmael. So stay with us. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Christina Ishmael is an educator, learner, advocate, and truly an agent of change. She currently serves as the Director of Primary and Secondary Education at Open Education Global. In this role, she's leading the development of a comprehensive effort to build global networks, infrastructure, and practices to support OER adoption and implementation at the primary and secondary level around the world. Before joining OEG, Ishmael was the Senior Project Manager of the Teaching, Learning, and Tech Team as part of the Education Policy Program at New America in Washington, D.C. Prior to this... She was the Digital Learning Specialist for the Nebraska Department of Education and an early childhood and elementary teacher of emerging bilingual students in Omaha, Nebraska. I wanted to say it all because it is so awesome. Welcome to the podcast, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome. Man, I love all of the things that you've done. They're all so great that you just want to say them all. So, Christina, we've used the, I've already used the term OER. Um, and, and I wanted to, I, instead of defining it as part of the introduction, I wanted to give you the chance because you are like a world leader in what this means and what this is um, to talk about what open educational resources are, why they're important, and what the vision is for them. Yeah. So Open Educational Resources, or OER, are resources that are available to download and allow you to customize them as well as share them with others. That is the easiest explanation I can give you. Um, How that differs from kind of traditional free materials is that there is a license attached to them that give you permissions to be able to customize the content. So I used to do this a lot in my classroom. Um, whenever I taught in Omaha, we know that textbooks in the U.S. are written for four states, which does not include Nebraska. And so I would customize that content for my kids, taking pictures of the local community and making sure that they kind of saw themselves in their resources as they were learning. And I taught early childhood and elementary. So particularly in kindergarten and second grade, my two favorite grades, it was really important for them to see themselves um, for their development. And so that is what OER is um, in a nutshell. They're important because they're accessible, they're free, and anyone around the world can use them. And the vision for them has actually changed quite a bit, I would say, in my four years of working with them at the U.S. Department of Education, leading a project there all on OER. For At first, it was just kind of a textbook substitute. So we wanted to get districts interested in this work instead of writing a check to the big publishing companies that they would consider OER instead, um, more relevancy, more timeliness, more personalization to the resources um, that students and teachers were using. And then over the, the past couple of years, we've been talking about how we can actually use them to build more inclusive and representative curriculum as well. And so that's where we find ourselves right now at kind of this intersection of um, like the racial reckoning that's happening here in the U.S. and in other countries for that matter. Uh, at the intersection of culturally responsive teaching, inclusive and representative materials, 
digital equity, because of where we are, because of the pandemic, all of these things really give us the opportunity to be able to use these resources for free and customize for our students and teachers. It seems to me that the opportunity is greater to work with materials that are inclusive and representative when they're open and free and accessible, as opposed to having to be beholden to a corporation or a mothership that is deciding, <laughs> you know, what education has to look like on paper, right? Does that, does that seem like a, that seems like a really good benefit to me. It does. And it's interesting because I've had the chance obviously to work at the, the U.S. and kind of federal level, but also working now globally. I was part of the Open Policy Forum that happened um, last Thursday. We would have all actually been in Poland together, but instead we were on Zoom. Um, but to hear the stories of how folks are using OER in other countries and finding like this natural point of collaboration um, where teachers didn't know that these resources existed or they were creating their own and now they have found ways to be able to share those. And so they shared re you know, um, stories from Brazil and Uruguay and other countries that um, have really built out kind of this community of practice within their education system because the need is there. Well, you just said our favorite three words. So I do, <laughs> I do want to touch on, cause you know, we, we, we wanted you here because I do see that the OER community as such an, a, a great example of a community practice that has yeah. really, and there's so many things to work on in that space, both oh, the sure. kind of vetting of materials, um, how that gets curated, how you actually help teachers use that where they don't feel like they're swimming around in so much stuff and they need applicability. But you mentioned the Go Open Pro project, which is actually when I first heard of you in terms of that work, because I feel like the Go Open, I think that was actually something in that administration they didn't talk about enough, which was how mm. much they really worked around open technologies in a lot of different areas and had so many incredible experts in, in even beyond the Department of Ed. Can you talk a little bit about the Go Open project and sort of the community and how that community has sort of even persisted and stayed together even um, when the administration changed? Yeah. Uh, I was actually looking at my um, throwback photos and seeing that October 30th of 2015 when um, Go Open launched at the White House. Mm -hmm. And this was part of the Connect Ed initiative from President Obama's administration, which was all about connectivity, but then also access to resources. Mm -hmm. And so Go Open was, again, a project to work with districts on substituting, basically, or replacing um, traditional textbooks with OER. They could be like starting small with like units um, where you build out the different kind of um, specific learning objects to build out a unit to a full kind of replacement in a grade level and content area. Uh, when I joined in April of 2016, my predecessor, Andrew Marcinek, had gotten everything started and then we overlapped for a couple of months and then um, I took it and bridged administrations through April 2017. Um, when I joined, there were 40 districts that had committed at that point to replace one textbook in one grade level and in one content area. When I left, we were already up to 110 districts. Awesome. And then we had also added states at that point. And the states um, coming in from the, either the ed tech position or the curriculum position at the Department of Ed committed to making sure that OER is included in like the definition of instructional materials at the state level. So policy implications, yeah. as well as trying to provide a repository for districts in that state to be able to find it. And then all of the states joined a community of practice as well. So there used to be ongoing calls every month. Um, there were 20 official states, or still are 20 official states, 
Um, unofficially, there are probably 28 or 29 because there are folks that are doing this. They just never got the press release out and everything like that. Uh, the, the community has continued to grow. Um, I would say I've worked with over 400 districts over the past four years. Uh, whether or not they officially like signed on to a Go Open um, is kind of beside the point. If they're using OER, I'd count them as a district. Uh, there is a Facebook group. There's still the hashtag that's being used. Um, ISKME that runs OER Commons are still supporting this work. And so they're really working with a lot of the states right now to help with this. And I worked with the state of Oregon this past summer quite a bit, um, just because I was living in Portland at the time. Yeah. Washington's way ahead of the game. They don't need my help, but um, <laughs> uh, they are also a go-open state. And so it's just really excited, exciting to see it continue yeah. Um, despite the fact that, you know, there isn't as much kind of uh, presence, I guess, at the Department of Ed right now, um, mm -hmm. when you when you think about the project itself. Yeah, and I'm curious, just in terms of a community practice where you're sort of again building new knowledge, building sort of best practices together. I am curious about how you all navigated. I think, um, like you mentioned earlier, around textbooks. I mean, there was a lot of stake in keeping things the way they were, and uh, you know, I think continue to be a little bit. Um, so I'm just curious about navigating those politics when you know there are sort of powerful interests at stake that might not want OER to be as successful as I think it will be and is now. Sure. I would say that uh, from the very beginning, the publishing companies, the big four, were invited to be part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that made a huge difference. And leveraging kind of the bully pulpit of the White House and the U.S. Department of Education, they were keen to join in. Um, whether or not they like actually had physical presence or not, there were a couple of publishing company representatives at some of the events that were held, the public events. And so they were listening to the conversations and they heard, and that actually made a change as far as what one publishing company offered within their online platform and their repository. They started infusing OER in there. And so there were small changes. And I think we continue to see those changes, you know, based on business models that you're seeing, <laughs> whether they're good or bad. Um, but you're also seeing more content developers creating more OER, like Open Syed. Um, they just put out a new RFP for expanding their science curriculum into high school, which is exciting to see because it's doing really well in middle school. Um, there have been quite a few other content developers that have come up since leaving the department. And so we continue to try to disseminate that information to make sure that people are aware of them. So thinking about, you know, the community that you're a part of, you know, starting with the open ed, you know, when you went to New America, I mean, that's a really interesting organization and, and not to this to be just the amazing biopic of Christina, <laughs> but just curious in relations to when you have worked with these kind of diverse communities, what the work at New America was like and, and what kind of organization that is, because it's, it's unique for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, so Anne-Marie Slaughter is the CEO and she joined um, from some, she was at higher ed level and then in government uh, and then stepped in that role. I think it was in 2015. And if you're familiar with the think tank world in DC, there are a lot of them. And <laughs> she really challenged um, the leadership at New America to be something more than just a think tank, but to be more of an action tank. And so that's where some of the work on the ed policy team that I was a part of, but also on the New America local team, which they're actually representatives in a couple of like non-traditional places like Indianapolis, um, Chicago, New York, Phoenix, um, also in the Bay Area. 
And they help kind of lift up local practices to inform policy at DC and then vice versa. And it's just kind of this feedback loop. Um, and then there was also the public interest technology team in which I was a part of that first cohort of folks. And these were folks that were like at the US Digital Services in the Obama administration. So technologists, engineers, designers, um, that were all brought into different agencies to help either like troubleshoot after like healthcare.gov, you know, that happened. Right. Um, so they help troubleshoot <laughs> yeah. those things yeah. with technology or they help provide, um, you know, kind of input into policy and different services that are offered by different agencies. So whether that's like unemployment, filing for unemployment and revising that or the FAFSA at ed, um, they were all kind of part of that. And so this was all stuff that then kind of carried on at New America. And so I just got to be a part of it and set up coffees with, you know, my peers that were in different teams and learn about the work that they were doing. So it definitely is just this amazing community of, of thinkers and doers um, that are doing some really great things and putting out policy recommendations based off of incredible research and analysis. Uh, I do not consider myself part of that. <laughs> Because I, um, I always like to say that I'm a practitioner and it was challenging at times too, because I was not researching, I was not doing any sort of policy analysis, um, but I was on the ground doing technical assistance or things like that that were actually in practice. Um, and I, I saw my role kind of, you know, develop over the course bridge? of the three years. Yeah. Yeah. But I was incredibly happy to be there and still affiliated with them too. I think it says a lot you know, that they understood the need to, you know, if you really wanted to be an action tank, like you can't do it if you just have the same group. Yeah. You need kind of practitioners that can sort of, again, bridge those. Um, so, I mean, you've had so much commitment to virtual learning and building inclusive structures and then before COVID. So <laughs> I think Mike and I are very interested to really pick your brain about what has you seen happen over the last eight months? Like, what are some amazing experiments? What have been just things that are still driving you crazy? I know we've talked a lot about sort of equity and this persistent um, lack of access. And certainly COVID has really um, brought all that up to the surface. If it hadn't been there already, it had been there already for many of us. But certainly it is now in everybody's face. So that's good. But I'm yeah. just curious what you're sort of seeing you know, that access and, and material sort of change through the pandemic, uh, better, worse, or otherwise. It's a really great question. Um, I think some districts have certainly taken this opportunity. I don't know if I really want to call it an opportunity, but taking this moment and run with it to make some changes as far as um, what learning looks like. And they have not tried to replicate it, the in-classroom or the in-person experience and have really changed the way that they're delivering content as well as just thinking about teaching and learning in general. So they're moving more towards project-based learning and inquiry-based learning, maybe even competency-based learning, because we know that these things are good. Um, but now we have this kind of like epidemic or pandemic, excuse me, to, um, to try something new. So I've definitely seen that. Um, I've seen more schools willing to share resources than previously, um, whether it was a, a competition, you know, if folks thought that they might lose um, funding, if their kids left or something like that, I've still seen an increase in collaboration and the willingness to share that being from like safety guidelines and procedures and protocols that the district is creating to resources that the kindergarten teacher has created that they're going to deliver online through an asynchronous or synchronous session. So it really varies. 
Um, and then there are some others that they're just like, nope, we're going to pretend that it'll all go back to normal. <laughs> and that's really hard. <laughs> Um, because they really are trying to replicate and basically just digitize uh, the in-person experience. And we know that that just doesn't work based off the research. So it's it's incredibly frustrating to see that. Um, I'm worried a lot about not only our kids right now, but our teachers. Um, oh, like <laughs> I hear from them frequently from former colleagues. I scroll through Twitter just to see what some teachers that are in classrooms are saying, whether they're um, they're teaching online or they're back to in-person or they're doing that terrible, terrible blend of the two. Um, I don't, I don't know how people are doing it and I wish yeah. them all health and wellness throughout <laughs> all of this. Yeah. yeah. I saw some things come up over the last, over the summer in particular, where I thought of you, where, where people were using a lot of like copyrighted resources and and mm. and um or music and and videos and stuff like that and you've spoken a lot about this about about copyright yeah. and and um creative commons and and stuff like that did this come up a lot for you because it, it came across my screen a couple of times and i was like oh this is dangerous territory to get into <laughs> and and i realized that everyone was in panic mode a lot of teachers yeah. are just trying to find things. And this is the case for open educational resources, it right? Is. Um, for sure. But you yeah. saw tons of teachers just losing their minds trying to find things to use yeah. and definitely not doing things the right way in a lot of cases out of desperation, right? It's interesting because I worked um, really closely with Meredith Jacob, who is at American University and helps run um, Creative Commons USA. Pretty early on in the pandemic, we, we started a Fair Use Fridays webinar series, and it started with the question, can I do read-alouds online? And I learned quite a bit in that process. I'm not going to lie, because there are some trainings that I've led in the past. And I was like, oh, maybe I like misspoke. Um, you can actually push fair use a lot more uh, than we often think. And I know that that is often the default, too, for teachers. They're like, oh, it's for education purposes. I can use it. I was like, well, we still need to go through like those questions or the four factors of fair use. But most often what I've heard from these lawyers in particular who are practicing and faculty members um, at American is that most often fair use will favor education. And so there are more liberties, I would say, than I might have um, previously thought. And I hope that I didn't do any fear mongering in my previous training. So apologies if I did. Um, but <laughs> I do. I still will always encourage people to use OER um, instead of copyrighted content, uh, just because we know the permissions that we're given with that. Um, but there is not always content to be found. So it's kind of a it's a balance of all yeah. of these. You recently started a podcast. Oh, yes. Called Revise, Remix, Redesign. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more Tell us about the podcast. So this idea came, let's say, probably about 18 months ago, actually, now at this point. We're all about storytelling at New America and through whatever kind of medium that was. And so a lot of times that came out in case studies or blog posts. Um, there was a New America Weekly magazine that went out. Um, and so I wanted to be able to tell the stories, but I also recognize the needs of educators and the time uh, restraints or constraints, excuse me, of, of educators, and that 
you get what a couple of seconds of attention maybe <laughs> and we know that more and more uh, educators are considering podcasts for pd and so that was another way for us to kind of get in there with these stories and so i wanted to talk to folks that were actually doing this work and so it ranged from um, content developers to district leaders to um, there was a teacher that was interviewed uh, we had planned to have a student and then of course COVID hit. So I'm kind of sad about that, but, um, so there are 10 episodes total and this was graciously supported by the Hewlett foundation, um, who funds a lot of this work to be another medium in which we could tell these stories. And we've had some really great feedback on them. I don't know about the possibility of another season, but I feel really happy and very proud of that one season that we did do. That's awesome. So we like to talk to our guests about the role of communities of practice, and we, it's come up a little bit already. Um, but in particular, how do you think communities of practice can aid educators and instructional designers, in particular, in creating a more inclusive or an engaging learning environment? I think part of it starts with self-work. Uh, Julie and I are actually part of a book study right now, um, reading how to be... I was hoping you guys would bring this up. <laughs> reading how to be an anti-racist and not just, you know, talking, but also like talking about implementation and what this looks like in practice in our own lives, in our work. And it has come up so much since then. And I know that there has also been... Mm -hmm my own personal work that I've been doing over the past couple of years. And so that that definitely influences a lot of the conversations about being inclusive and representative and, and talking about that with content developers. I think what's really interesting is that the community of practice as far as like go open districts are concerned or even districts that are using OER um, is that they, they're at such different kind of um, places. So they're at different places as far as the use of these resources. So some of them really are looking for like the, the open textbook to replace what they currently have. And then others are creating from scratch because they wanna provide multiple per, uh, perspectives and multiple viewpoints. And they wanna make sure that it's a comprehensive um, kind of effort and that they're including more voices. And so then that's where you get into the inclusion and representation. Um, but sometimes it really just starts with like planting that seed um, and talking about pronouns, talking about names, um, when something is openly licensed, I obviously have the ability to change these things. And so I am not, uh, unlike any other teacher here, but I know that whenever I would change the names instead of like Sally and Johnny to kids' names that were actually in my classroom to Javier and to Angel, like that really matters. And so it's small mm -hmm. changes like that, but also knowing the, the reasoning for it behind it and not just simply doing it for the sake of doing it, but so that kids can actually see the relevance um, to their own lives and that being just one way to get that started. And so, so you have the districts that are all at kind of various entry points and, and levels of use, but then you also have them representing um, different kinds of communities. So we noticed right away for go open districts, they tended to be in suburbs and they tended to be more affluent districts, even though we know that more urban districts who have lower or the least amount of resources actually need OER more, um, or rural districts yeah. for that matter. Yeah, who that don't have libraries. Resources. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yep. exactly. Yep. 
who don't have the resources could also um, benefit from all of this. And so it's just making sure that everyone is kind of part of that conversation to say, well, you know, in rural Nebraska, we're doing this, this, and this. How could we translate that to Omaha, Nebraska? So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about just how some of these uh, these conversations have to start with personal work before they can lend themselves to more of the community and building the content. You know, I, I mean, I never really thought about curriculum in mm-hmm. even the early stages of my career until I kind of went back to school and where, okay. um, you know, that it's such contested space. I think we can see yeah. that certainly now with kind of what you are saying, but also, you know, districts that are taking on 1619 potentially. Yeah. And that, and curriculum has always been political. Obviously, if anybody has ever driven through the state of Texas would know this, that, you know, yeah. these are, and it's not just Texas, even these kind of conversations happen um, even in in the North and, and everywhere and certainly yeah. the South. I'm curious about the, how you see the roles of communities of practice within that sort of new knowledge building, right? Where you're looking at curriculum as contested space and Mm. that there's multiple voices in there. And that when you do bring in these other districts and you do bring in these other voices that, um, it takes on a very new, (laughs) you know, it just takes on a new shape. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I think even again, like just building awareness, um, is where it starts. And so the first keynote that I talked about windows and mirrors and sliding doors, by Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop was in the spring of 2019, which, I mean, is probably too late, (laughs) but it was new to a lot of people. And so in that room, they then were able to take that back to their schools. And I think that that continues to be part of the conversation um, within this specific community of practice, and hopefully will infiltrate others. Um, You know, if I think about um, liberate and chill folks on Twitter or clear the air, EduColor, whatever it may be. And um, these are all communities of practice that I'm learning from in, at the same time. And that influences my work as well. And so planting those seeds everywhere I can. <laughs> um, Christina, how can people connect with you? How can they learn more about you, connect with your work and all the amazing things that you're doing? I'll share some links because that would be the easiest way, but I'm on Twitter a lot. So I am at K.M. Ishmael, I-S-H-M-A-E-L. Yes, like the book, Moby Dick. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Um, Yes, so call me Ishmael. It's K.M. Ishmael. Yeah, we'll get him in the show notes. Uh, Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Participate. My name is Dr. Julie Kane. My co-host is the great Mike Washburn. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at participate.com. You can tweet us at at participate. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found there at Julie Kane. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or in Google Podcasts. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. Thanks as always for listening. Until next time.